0: Welcome to episode 20 of Talking Shit About with me, Elizabeth, and my fiance Gil. Fiance. And my fiance got me a Snuggie for <laughs> either, uh, I think it was Christmas. Um, Merry
1: Christmas, one of the two.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm wearing it right now. It's perfect for podcasting. Um, this is part three of our The Siege at Ruby Ridge series. And there's going to be one more part after this, but this is sort of the meaty episode. I should probably come up with a better word, but it's what I got. And we'll just jump right into it. Uh, last month, we left off with the Weaver's hold up on their property, awaiting the impending Armageddon. The FBI and all the agencies involved are scrambling, and they're preparing for this... I don't know what war. Uh, t-
1: well, yeah, suppo- in theory, an attempt at arresting the guy. Yeah. Um, realistically, yeah. yeah. So, causing a small war on a mountaintop <sighs> with, a, with one family.
0: Yeah, hopefully you've listened to the other episodes. If not, you should, so you know what's going on.
1: Hold on.
0: Okay. I was really hoping the dogs would be chill, but maybe not. So, for those unfamiliar with the following events, this is where all of the content warnings from part one come into play. Again, not a happy story. So, it was about 10.30 a.m. on Friday, August 21st, 1992, when the family dog, Stryker, began to bark excitedly. Sam and Kevin followed the dog while Randy walked down an old logging road, parallel to their direction. Randy reached the intersection where the logging road met with another road, known as the Y, when an armed man in camo appeared in front of him and yelled, Freeze, Randy! Randy responded with, Fuck you! and ran back towards home. While Randy was running from the Y to his home, he heard a gunshot and Stryker yelping, then two more shots, then silence. He yelled to the boys that Stryker had been shot and to go back into the house, then he heard more gunshots. Hoping to distract the agents, Randy fired a shot into the air with his double-barrel shotgun, which jammed, so then he used his 9mm pistol to shoot into the air three more times. He was still hearing shots, but heard Sam yell, I'm coming, Dad, and so Randy headed to the cabin. While all this was going on, Sam and Kevin had stumbled across three federal agents, and the events from here vary depending on who's telling the story, but for now we're going to focus on Kevin's account of what happened. As the two boys were walking down a trail, Stryker rushed toward a man donned in camo and armed with a silenced submachine gun. Before Kevin could tell the man that Stryker was just playing, not attacking, Stryker ran around the man once and began racing uphill when the man shot the dog and ran into the bushes. A later autopsy would confirm that Stryker was shot in the rear, meaning he was not attacking the man when he was shot. Sam stopped in front of his now dead dog and cried, you shot my dog, you son of a bitch and raised his gun toward the marshals and fired. Sam was then shot in the arm and yelled that he had been hit. Kevin fired at the marshals to protect Sam and was nearly shot in the process. Kevin headed for cover, smoke puffs and shell casings filling the air. He could also hear Randy calling for them. Kevin made his way back to Sam, who was lying face down on the road. Kevin turned him over and saw blood covering his chest. His eyes were rolled back into his head, and his lips were beginning to turn blue. He wasn't breathing and had no pulse. Kevin left him and headed to the cabin. It was later confirmed that Sam, a 14-year-old boy less than 5 feet tall, weighing less than 80 pounds, was shot in the back. I want to add a note here that it is in the state his statement to the FBI and under oath at Kevin's trial, Marshal Thomas Norris, who was on the six-man team present on the property that day, testified that the first three shots at the Y sounded distinctly like a 2 23 calibers, I you say that right. 223.
1: 223,
0: okay. Rather than the boom of a 30 odd six? six, 30 odd oh, six, 30 odd. I always thought it's 30 odd six. No, it's odd 30 odd six,
1: 30 caliber made in 1906.
0: 30
1: odd ah. six, mm. okay. which I will say have two very distinctly different sounds. Yeah, having shot so, both extensively.
0: Yeah, so what. This is saying, essentially, is that the Marshalls shot first. Yes, the times. Marshalls
1: with their M16s, the mm-hmm. 223, uh shot first before the Weavers with their .30-06 hunting rifles. Mm-hmm. Unless they had a BAR, but I don't think that ever came up. Um,
0: I don't know what that is. It's
1: a Browning automatic rifle. It's ah. like an automatic rifle chambered in .30-06. It's like mm-hmm. a very uncommon caliber to have anything other than a deer rifle in
0: um where are we after randy was back at the cabin kevin showed up alone in tears he told the family that sam was dead and randy broke down sarah had her rifle on her and randy took it emptying the entire clip in the air while sarah reloaded vicky ran inside to change from a skirt into jeans and boots when she returned she told the rest of the family that they needed to retrieve sam and so they did not knowing that the agents who killed the boy were still there watching within the woods luckily they were able to get sam without incident and lay him in their guest shed they rested the body on top of a bed, and in the same bed Vicky had birthed Elishaba on, then cleaned the blood from his body and wrapped him in a sheet. He had been shot in the back, and part of his elbow had been blown off. It was around this time that the family began hearing sirens. For a while, they camped outside with food, blankets, and ammunition, but after it began to rain, they moved inside the cabin. They tied up Sarah's dog, Buddy, outside so he could alert them to any outside presence. Anytime Randy left the house that day, Sarah was by his side, not wanting anything to happen to her father while he was alone. The house was quiet that evening, with little to no sleeping or eating. The family learned from listening to the radio that the narrative was that the Weavers had ambushed a couple of U.S. marshals, and that it, and that was oh, and that was how Kevin learned that he had shot and killed Marshal William Deegan. There was no more communication or contact until the next evening. Before we continue, let's go over the Marshalls' version of events that day. Marshals Cooper, Roderick, and Deegan, in the woods of the Weaver property, heard Stryker bark and catch onto their scent. They ran from the Weavers, believing to be in an ambush. Roderick told the men they needed to take the dog out, and Cooper said he would take care of the dog if it got too close. Cooper popped out into a trail, spotted Randy, and yelled, back off, U.S. Marshal!" and Randy turned and ran. Cooper, Deegan, and Roderick were hiding in the woods when Kevin, Sam, and Stryker appeared. Deegan rose from behind a stump and allegedly flashed his ID and yelled freeze, U.S. Marshal, and Kevin shot him in the chest. Cooper saw this and then fired at Kevin, who dropped to the ground. Cooper radioed to Roderick, but he was busy dealing with Stryker. The dog had run up to him, then turned it and ran back to Sam as Roderick shot the dog in the back. Sam stumbled upon his dead dog, yelled at Roderick, and then fired at him, hitting him in the stomach. Shots flew from everywhere, and Roderick drove for cover. It was allegedly unclear to them if Sand had been shot. Shortly after this, Deegan died in Cooper's arms. At this time, the story was that the only casualty so far was that of Deegan and that the men were pinned down on the mountain and under fire. Later, all the marshal's guns would be inspected to see how many rounds were fired. Roderick had fired once, Cooper fired two three-round bursts, and Deegan was missing seven rounds, although Cooper claimed Deegan hadn't fired a single shot. Meanwhile, the narrative among the powers that be was that the property was booby-trapped and the whole family, including the children, were out for blood, and so the FBI changed the rules of engagement. The standard rules of engagement are as follows.
1: Agents are not to use deadly force against any person except as necessary in self-defense or in the defense of another when they have reason to believe they or another are in danger of death or grievous bodily harm. Whenever feasible, verbal warning should be given before deadly force is applied.
0: Guys, chill out. And here's what the rule was changed to for
1: Operation Northern Exposure. If any adult in the compound is observed with weapons after the surrender announcement is made, deadly force can and should be used to neutralize this individual. If any adult male is observed with a weapon prior to the announcement, deadly force can and should be employed if a shot can be taken without endangering the children. If compromised by any dog, the dog can be taken out. Any subjects other than Randy, Vicky, and Kevin presenting threat of death or grievous bodily harm, FBI rules of deadly force apply.
0: These rules of engagement were approved by Gene Glenn, one of my least favorite humans, and faxed along with the plan to the deputy assistant director, who claims he only received the first page of the document and never saw the rules of engagement. On Saturday, August 22nd, the family solemnly completed their chores, darting from place to place to avoid being shot by snipers. Around 4.30 p.m., they heard their dogs barking outside, and Randy, Kevin, and Sarah decided to investigate. Randy didn't see anyone, so he headed to the guest shed to check on Sam when he was shot in the back. Randy claims he whipped around to spit in the face of whoever shot him, but he turned and saw no one. Sarah had rushed over to her father, who told her he had been shot. She yelled at him to get into the house and shoved him in that direction, while Vicky, with baby Alicia in her arms, stood on the porch to see what was going on. As Sarah used her body to shield her father from the snipers, she thought to herself, if you want to murder my dad, you're gonna have to shoot another kid in the back first. As her family ran toward the cabin, Vicky then did something out of character, which was to curse, yelling, you bastards. Randy and Sarah got into the house while Vicky held the door open for them. As he's the one that saw it happen, I think it's most fitting to use Kevin's description of what happened next.
1: As I started through the door, I heard a loud boom. I was looking at Vicky, at her face. As I heard the shot, it was as if there was something moving under her skin, then her face was deformed. Almost seemed to explode. Next thing I knew, I was lying on the floor. When I couldn't feel my left hand, I realized I'd been hit. Vicky convulsed several times and then was still.
0: Vicky had been shot in the head, her blood and pieces of skull showering the three girls. After the initial shock wore off, the Weavers quickly grabbed Alicia but and placed her in Rachel's arms. The baby was unharmed, although blood and bits of bone littered her hair and body. Meanwhile, Rachel was sobbing, repeating, I can't live without mom. Vicky and Randy had been shot by a man named Lou Horiuchi, one of the FBI's best snipers, allegedly, using a 308 caliber sniper rifle with a weighted barrel and a 10-power scope. Later, Horiuchi would testify multiple times that the visibility that day was quote-unquote excellent. When Horiyuchi had initially fired at Randy, he had missed at least one shot from just 200 yards away. Can you give us a visual of, like, what 200 yards is for
1: us? Two two football fields?
0: Two football fields. All right.
1: Yeah, 200-yard shot isn't an easy shot, but snipers are trained to be able to shoot a lot better than that.
0: The bullet that killed Vicky had traveled through her skull and into Kevin's arm, lodging itself near his heart. Sarah cradled Kevin's head in her arms and tried to help him the best she could, but he told her he was dying. Meanwhile, Randy dragged Vicky into the kitchen and searched for a blanket to cover the body. After getting Kevin into a more comfortable position, Sarah remembered that her father had been injured, so she had a look at his arm, but couldn't see where the bullet had come out. Randy put his jacket back on, then he and the girl sat down on the living room floor and, to quote Sarah, waited to die. Here's a direct quote from Randy about the scene to give you a feel for the atmosphere that evening.
1: Later that night, the pain was so bad that Kevin asked me to kill him by shooting him in the head when he wasn't looking. I told him I couldn't do it. He would have to use his good arm and do it himself. My daughter started crying and pleading with Kevin, begging him not to do it. They said, we've lost too many already.
0: Later into the night, they could hear people creeping around under the house. Randy yelled at them through the floor that they had murdered Vicki and Sam, and that he and Kevin were wounded, but got no response. Throughout the night, Elisheba would wake up crying, calling out for her mother, but there was nothing they could do. Vicky was dead. On Sunday, the 23rd, a bullhorn rang out, telling the family to pick up a phone that they had set up 50 yards from the house. Inside the cabin, Sarah and Randy were patching up Kevin, who had a wound almost two and a half inches wide and raised about a three-quarter inch. In addition to the bullet hole, he also had broken ribs. They gave him cayenne pepper capsules to combat blood poisoning, used an entire bottle of peroxide on his wounds, and utilized Golden Deal to help with the infection. Sarah spotted a clump of something stuck on Kevin's pant leg, only to discover it was a bloody clump of her mother's hair. She didn't mention it to anyone at the time. Kevin survived, constantly requesting water and cigarettes and going in and out of consciousness sarah also patched up her father after they noticed an exit hole on the jacket he had been wearing and sure enough when he took his shirt off there was an exit wound in his armpit sarah said the stench of blood and raw flesh made her sick All while this was going on rachel took care of baby elisha who thankfully slept a lot soon after the bullhorn started an apc armored personnel carrier began driving around the property destroying anything in its path randy worried that the tank would run over the shed holding sam's body but he later learned on a news report that agents had removed Sam's body, with some also reporting that it had been Kevin who had killed Sam. The family had other re- another restless evening as agents turned floodlights onto the cabin throughout the night. And the next morning, a man from the hostage rescue team named Fred Lancelly went on to the bullhorn, ordering Randy to pick up the phone or to send Vicki or the girls out. He would repeat, Mrs. Weaver, how's the baby, Mrs. Weaver? Is there anything we can do for the kids, Mrs. Weaver? Remember, Vicky was lying dead on the kitchen floor after being shot in the head. Fred would also repeatedly refer to baby Elisheba as Elizabeth, which is great. That's a great way to negotiate with somebody is to get the baby's name wrong.
1: And ask for a dead woman. Yeah,
0: that too. Uh, Dave and Jean, Sam's grandparents, heard about the boy's death via national news on the following Monday, the 24th. Although they had arrived the day prior, where federal agents had the opportunity to tell the Jordansons of the news of Sam's death in person, face to face. That evening was just like the last, with floodlights blaring through the windows and the sounds of APCs prowling around the property. Tuesday the 25th was relatively uneventful, with the exception of a new man with a Spanish accent on the microphone, calling out again to Vicky and inviting the family to enjoy some pancakes. On the 26th, the family began writing a letter telling their side of the story in case they didn't survive. Fred was back on the bullhorn, alerting the family that a robot would be coming to their door with a phone attached to it. After a few unsuccessful pleas to get Randy to pick up the phone, Fred said the robot would soon be breaking a window and pushing the phone into the house. But after Randy yelled that he would shoot it through the door and to back off, they complied. The robot stayed untouched on the porch until days later, but Sarah said every time she was in the kitchen, she could hear it humming. Because the family hadn't fired from their cabin, the property clearly wasn't booby-trapped, and the details of Deacon shooting began to unravel, the rules of engagement were reversed. Next on the mic was a man named John. Randy told the man that the only person he would speak to was his sister Marnie. I don't know if it's it's spelled like Marnus, but- Marnie's
1: Marnie, I think Marnie. I think right. Marnie. I've looks heard right. that name before, at least.
0: Yeah, but the conversation was frustrating due to the fact that they were yelling at each other from far away, and it was likely difficult for the agents to hear what Randy was saying. Eventually, they got the drift, but asked if Randy planned on killing himself or his kids after his story got out. Randy swore he wouldn't, and they promised to get Marnie there from Iowa. The following day, Thursday the 27th, the agent placed a loudspeaker under the cabin and played a message from the prominent radio host, Paul Harvey, who pleaded with Randy to answer the phone as well as a message from the kid's grandparents. At about noon, it was announced on the bullhorn that Marnie was on her way, but they wouldn't allow her to approach the cabin. So instead, she had to communicate via the bullhorn, but was unable to hear anything Randy was trying to tell her due to her hearing loss, so eventually they all gave up. Elsewhere, crowds of protesters had protesters had gathered at the police roadblock two miles from the property. The police had begun arresting protesters armed with guns in their vehicles on the 25th after multiple groups had tried to enter the, enter the property to help the Weavers either by negotiating or bringing more firearms. The crowd consisted of neighbors, Kevin's family, skinheads from Portland and Vegas, and a handful of veterans. One of the skinheads who was arrested pissed himself. Among the crowd was Colonel James Bo Greitz, a former Green Beret, and if you remember in Part 1, Randy cited Greitz's book called To Serve. On the 28th, Randy heard the news that Greitz was in town and yelled from the cabin that he would be willing to talk with the Green Beret. Gre- Greitz? Greitz. No, I know. No. <laughs> um, Greitz attempted a citizen's arrest on Gene Glenn, which I kind of love. Um, due to the pressure on Glenn, Greitz was allowed to approach the cabin and speak with Randy on Friday, August 28th. The first thing Randy told Greitz was that Vicky was dead and that he and Kevin were wounded. The two talked for a bit, then Greitz left and promised he'd be back the next day. Here's a clip of Glenn announcing Vicky's death.
1: The three children are in good health. Kevin is all right.
0: did suffer a wound randy's in good health unfortunately
1: vicky is dead
0: god that clip okay so walter's book paints glenn as a sympathetic character saying he was tearing up during that announcement and that vicky's family appreciated him but after watching the pbs documentary i don't see it Like, that's just his face. Like, he just has this kind of concerned look on his face. I don't think he's, like... I think he's embarrassed. Um, But, anyways, this is my own personal shit. Gratz returned in the morning with a mutual friend of the Reavers, Jackie Brown. The two listened as the family read them their written account of what had happened, and Sarah asked Jackie to tell her family and friends that they loved them. Eventually, Jackie came into the house and checked on the men's wounds. She was given a letter from the Jordansons and a copy of their story. On the paper, Sarah had written Alicia... name in all caps. Because Jackie had been searched on her way into the cabin, Sarah came up with the clever plan of hiding the papers in a maxi pad. Jackie placed the pad in her underwear and successfully passed the FBI's pat down. On his way out, Greitz examined the robot still hanging out on the porch and discovered in addition to the attached phone, it also had a camera and a sawed-off shotgun attached to it, which is like a terrible irony just like he, you know, is charged with like the sawing off of shotguns oh, yeah, and he like yeah. hates, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It. Yeah. It's something else. The next morning on the 30th, Grites returned once again with former Phoenix police officer Jack McLam, and mediated a negotiation between Kevin and the agents. They came to an agreement that Kevin would surrender if the troops surrounding the property would withdraw. Grites convinced Randy to let Kevin go by telling him that if Kevin died in that cabin... Greitz would hold Randy personally responsible and testify against Randy in court. Greitz and McLam helped Kevin off the property, and he was taken to a hospital where he stayed for about two and a half weeks. Once Kevin was released from the hospital, he was taken into custody and was charged in federal district court with the following, and prosecutors were going for the death penalty.
1: The first-degree murder of Agent William Deegan, conspiring with the Weaver family to cause an, arm, to cause an armed confrontation with the government... Assault with a deadly deadly weapon on Roderick Cooper Roderick, Cooper and Deegan. Assault with a deadly weapon on a helicopter. Harbouring a fugitive, i.e. Randy, aiding and abetting the possession of firearms by Randy and using a firearm to commit said crimes.
0: He never shot at a helicopter. That was Randy that shot at a helicopter. Oh yeah. Kevin's trial
1: lasted about two months
0: and involved fifty six witnesses from the prosecution and none from the defense. On July 8, 1993, the jury found Kevin not guilty on all counts. Back to the 30th of August, 1992. Later in the day, after escorting Kevin off the property, Greitz returned with Jackie Brown and a body bag for Vicki. Beau carried Vicki from the kitchen, vowing that her body would not touch the ground, while Jackie stayed behind to clean up the blood. Beau returned one last time that day to talk with Randy, then he and Jackie left. Later, Randy removed Vicki's rings from his pockets and gave them to Rachel and Sarah. At this point, the hostage rescue team was done negotiating. We're planning a raid the next day, but overnight, Glenda had decided to give it one more shot. Fred, Lansley, and Greitz came up with Operation Alaska, a contingency plan in case the negotiations fell through. Greitz and McLam would wait for Alicia to fall asleep. Then McLam would grab Sarah and Rachel and bring them to the floor, while Greitz would jump on Randy. After using the code word Alaska on his radio, agents would come in and hopefully make the arrests without incident. On the morning of August 30th, Grites and McLam were back back with a letter from family and friends and were demanding that Randy surrender. Sarah didn't trust the men and that only raised tensions. Grites ultimately convinced Randy to surrender and Randy was able to convince his daughter that surrender was the best option. Sarah and her sisters changed and packed up some of their things, laying down their weapons for the first time in almost two weeks. Then, hand in hand, Randy, Sarah, Rachel, and Ba stepped out of the cabin. Randy was immediately strapped to a stretcher and taken into custody. The girls were put into a car and taken to a neighbor's house, which was being used as a sort of base. All around them were hundreds of camouflaged men, helicopters, emergency vehicles, and tents. At the neighbor's home, the girls were offered juice and cookies, and Sarah was questioned about whether there were landmines on the property. Again, there were not. The girls were allowed to say a final goodbye to their father before he was loaded into a helicopter. From there, they were taken by their grandparents to a hotel where they watched their father being transported on the news. Sarah desperately wanted to stay in Idaho to be close to her father, but her family convinced her that going to Iowa was the only way they could stay together. And so Sarah, Rachel, and Elisheba moved to Iowa to be with her family. Sam and Vicky's bodies were cremated shortly after the siege ended, but Randy noted in his book that prior to the cremation, the FBI had cut off Vicky's fingers and sent them to a facility in Quantico, and were never returned for cremation. Nor was any reason for this ever given. I tried to look that up. I couldn't find anything. If anybody knows, you can now email me at calizabeth.pod at gmail.com. I remembered to set up a email. Like I said, I was going to do months ago. I remembered it today, like an hour ago. <laughs> so, yay. But essentially, all that shit that we talked about in part one... With like Armageddon and you know the federal government's overreach, all of that, it happened to them. Like their story came became true.
1: Yeah, they, with you know in the history of these raids, which this is of course not the only one that exists, but there's sort of a weird, a weird trend in the feds, whether it's the marshals or the FBI or the DEA or the ATF or all of those, whatever the alphabet soup gang it is, kind of making these prophecies come true. And admittedly, these prophecies are very easy to attach to anything that goes wrong. So it's not like, like they were right. But, I mean, we saw it with Waco. We saw it with the move bombing. Move bombing being an interesting an interesting thing too, and directly uh, opposite of this in a lot of ways most ways, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's just a a funny thing trend in these kinds of incidents
0: Ooh, Marty <sighs> I was about to make a comment that oh, now they've calmed down as we're wrapping up, but then she starts talking
1: again yeah
0: um that's what you get if you get a husky or a husky mix just just so y'all know. Uh,
1: they make a lot of sounds. Yes,
0: they're very talkative. So March's episode will be the last part of the series. It'll be about the Senate hearings and trials and the cover up. Because surprise, surprise, lot- there was many attempted cover ups <laughs> and many oh I didn't know about that or ooh, no one told me about that and no way to hold those people accountable. So um, yeah. we'll get into that. Again, you can email me at killizabeth.pod at gmail.com. K-I-L-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H dot P-O-D at gmail.com. You can send me topic suggestions. You can send me any questions you have. You can send me constructive feedback. Um, You can also request to be a guest on the show. Just let me know what you want to talk about. And a little little bit about yourself. And I am toying with the idea of reading lists of people's things they want to talk shit about so if you want to vent about anything or if you just have a list of shit you don't like you can send it to me and maybe I'll read it on the show um just let me know if you want me to use your name or not even if you don't want me to read it just send it to me I'd love 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 to let you vent at me So, thank you so much for listening and dealing with our crazy-ass dogs, and we will see you in March.